0: Well, good morning. For those who don't know me, I'm Bruce Drugsma. I'm the pastor of community and spiritual formation here at Wysetta Free Church. Before I get started, I need to release the kids uh, to go for Kids Club, Summer Kids Club downstairs, so they can meet the adult leaders in the back. Um, So they're excused now to go down there. They're going to do gym stuff and hear a Bible story, and then I think do more gym stuff while we're up here uh, talking through the book of Malachi and so before I get started, I do, I've introduced myself. I also want to share just a little bit uh Last week, you had Lowry Bessonin. We had Lowry Bessinen come from Village School of the Bible. Uh, she shared from the book of Esther. I think that was a really good, it ties in really well with my message, so I'm really excited to reference that and tie those two together a little bit. Um, she also talked about Village School of the Bible's cover to cover coming this fall. And so if you were here last week, you probably got one of these sheets. If you were not here last week, I would encourage you to pick one up. They're in the info racks at the welcome tables, um, or just find me and ask me where you can find them. I'd love to point you to them because we have a lot of opportunities to dig into God's word coming this fall. Village School is one. Another one is called Walk Through the Bible and they're coming in October and Village School is, is all year long. It's 16 weeks on the Old Testament, 16 weeks on the New Testament. It's a really deep, intensive dive and it's fantastic. Walk through the Bible, similar name, similar goal, getting people in God's word, completely different uh, way we're going about it. With Walk Through the Bible, they come in and do a three-hour seminar that does an overview of the entire Old Testament, and then you go home with a six-week Bible study that you can do on your own or in a small group. So that's coming in October. So I wanted to clarify that a little bit, talk about those things coming up. And partly because we're going to look at Malachi this morning. And Malachi is an Old Testament prophet. And when I was in middle school and high school, I didn't understand the Old Testament prophets, and quite frankly, pretty much ignored them. When it came time to do Bible reading, I opened to the books that made sense to me, the ones that were stories, the ones that I felt like I could track with. And kind of whenever somebody would reference those other books, I'd be like, how do you find the good verses in there in amongst all the stuff that just doesn't seem to make any sense? And then somebody took the time to explain to me How the Old Testament fits together, how the prophets play in, um, how to read them in their context. And all of a sudden, I became a person who not only reads the prophets, but I can tell you I have multiple favorite Old Testament prophets. And if that's really bizarre to you, I would encourage you to take advantage of Village School of the Bible or walk through the Bible, and maybe you too can have a favorite Old Testament prophet. So those are some of the things. So as we look at Malachi, I want to share a little bit of that history and story before we get into it. I also want to share that recently, in earlier this spring, thank you, Wysetta Free, I had the opportunity to go on a sabbatical leave for eight weeks, I appreciate that, I'm excited to be back. For two weeks of that, we did a family vacation, and we picked up an RV, we rented it in Bozeman, Montana, and we drove around and saw seven national parks and returned it to Bozeman, Montana. That's a picture of us at Yellowstone towards the end of our trip at the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. Um, but the first thing we did when we got the RV in Bozeman, Montana, is we went uh, to through a canyon, on a road through a canyon, to West Yellowstone, and then down to Salt Lake City, and then to Moab. And so we picked up this 30-foot RV, left our minivan behind, loaded my wife, our four kids, into the RV, and headed out on this mountain canyon road. And has anybody driven the road from Bozeman to West Yellowstone? It's pretty windy, pretty narrow, lots of canyon walls. Montana does this cool thing where they put a white cross on the side of the road where everybody has ever died. (laughs) And so, you know, we're passing all of these crosses, and I'm starting to question the decisions that I've made. <laughs> and 40 miles an hour feels like you're flying in a 30-foot RV on a winding canyon road. And we continue on our, on our trip, and then we return the RV, and we get in our minivan, and we leave Bozeman, and we head down to the Black Hills, and then we head home across South Dakota. And if anybody's driven across South Dakota, you know how it is. You wake up in the morning, and you get on the freeway, and you look, and you see where you're going to have lunch later in the day, off in the (laughs) distance. And we took off, and we're going 80 miles an hour, and it took forever. And 80 miles an hour in South Dakota feels like you're crawling along. (laughs) And it just... Because because we measure change and we measure time not really by the watch or by the calendar, but by our perspective and our experience. It's the same thing with how we measure longer distance of time. How many of you have been on vacation and two weeks feels like it's gone like that and then you go back to work and two weeks, especially two weeks of work from home, (laughs) feels like six months of your life has gone away, right? Because we measure time by experience, not by the clock and not by the calendar. And our perspective is really important. In Malachi, perspective is really important, and it's all about perspective. It's all about how the Israelites have lost perspective. They're they're looking the wrong direction. They're assuming things they shouldn't assume. They're wanting things and not realizing what God is doing. And Malachi is all about this lost perspective. And so just to give you the historical context, we have the Israelites and we know the story of, of how, you know, Joseph and they end up in Egypt and and then Moses comes along and he takes them and we've studied Exodus. We're studying Acts. We studied Exodus. How they're leaving Egypt. Right, And they're going to go into the promised land, and then they get in there, and there's the time of the judges, and then they get the kings, and they get Saul, and they get David, and they get Solomon, and then the kingdom splits in two. And then the northern kingdom eventually gets hauled off into exile, and some of them stay out there, and that's where Esther happened last week. Esther, you know, those that never returned, those that are gone, those that stayed away and assimilated. But then you have the southern kingdom, you have Judah, right? And they disobey God as well, and they get hauled off into exile, and that's where you get Daniel and Daniel is living in exile, and you get some of them coming back, Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding their community. And after they've rebuilt their city and rebuilt their temple, and they've come back and repented for the sin that sent him into exile, you now have 100 years later Malachi showing up. And Malachi is showing up because Israel is falling into the same mistakes again. Israel is rejecting God again. Israel is getting back into form again but so is their decadence and decay. Malachi comes on the scene and tells them, do not lose perspective. And so I want to share four lessons on perspective this morning that I think we can learn from Malachi. And they're they're the story of Israel's lost perspective, but really they're the story of all of us when we lose that perspective. So lesson number one, the Israelites had the wrong perspective on love. The Israelites had the wrong perspective on love. And we're going to get into Malachi, and we're going to see that Malachi has this back and forth. Picture it almost like a one-man show on Broadway where God is playing both God himself and the Israelites. And there's going to be this back and forth, and he's going to ask this question, and then he is going to respond for Israel and say, this is how you respond. And he's showing them their heart, right? Because sometimes we like to spin our own perspective, Oh, it's not really that bad. Oh, I haven't, I haven't really betrayed you, God. Right? Well, God's going to play it as it is. And so picture that as we get into it. And we're going to start reading in chapter one, starting in verse two, where God says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish, they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the border borders of Israel and this is a hard passage for us and I think we get wrapped up into that word hate Esau have I hated and by the way Esau Edom same thing Uh, that's the Edom is the descendants of Esau that's significant in here Um, but we get wrapped up in this word hate and really this is about love this is about love and 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 God is portraying to Israel how they have rejected his love just like Esau and so he says I have loved you and yet you think you are hated like Esau You think you are hated like Edom. And really, Edom and Esau aren't hated for who they are. They're hated, and, and, and that word hate doesn't really mean animosity as much as it means rejection. They are rejected by God because they have rejected God. And we see that early on in the story of Jacob and Esau, where we see Esau rejecting his birthright in favor of a current want, a bowl of soup. You can have it. Give me the soup. I want my thing now. And we see that 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 ambivalence that we see in Esau through Edom will turn into open animosity and hostility towards not only God, but God's people. And so he's portraying them and saying, you feel like you've been rejected, but I tell you, you are loved. And that love has with it accountability. There's accountability when you are loved. You see, Israel's perspective is, God, if you love me, their their perspective is that of a spoiled child. God, you love me by giving me what I want. I love you, you love me, so give me what I want. And what I want is I want to see them punished. And God says, no, no, that's not what love is. Love is accountability. Love is me looking at you and saying, hey, you are not honoring me as you should. And we see this unpacked more in the book of Romans. In fact, in Romans chapter nine, Paul is going to use the exact passages from Malachi as part of his argument. And he says this in Romans 9, 8. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. See, it's not about birth. It's not about being Jacob or Esau. It's about whether or not you respond to God's love and God's accountability. They have the wrong perspective. They thought love was something they deserved. And we all are loved by God, but with that love comes accountability. God is going to hold us accountable for how we behave This choosing is God's grace, but it holds them to a higher standard. In Malachi, God starts with, I have loved you. Of all the peoples on earth, I have chosen you. And we see that Edom, Esau, we see that 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 ambivalence turns to animosity. And we see throughout Israel's history that they turn, they're supposed to be brothers, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, and we see them turn, not from brothers, but, but to enemies. And we see in Amos, another prophet, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. They took advantage of Judah. God's love was open to them, and they rejected it, and that rejection turned into hatred and anger. And Israel is looking at God the same way now, saying, God, if you love me, give me what I want. They had the wrong perspective on love. Number two, the Israelites had the wrong perspective on honor. As you read the Old Testament, I would encourage you to do that. Covenant is a huge theme that shows up again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. And it starts all the way back in Genesis 3 when sin enters the world. Sin enters the world, there's the curse, and as God is talking to Eve, he says says to her, there will be enmity between your offspring and his, referencing the serpent, referencing Satan. There will be enmity between you two. And later on, he says that your offspring, right, Satan will strike his heel, meaning Jesus, and he will crush his head. And there we see the first glimpse of this covenant theology, this idea that God is going to redeem his people. Even at the very beginning, when we reject God, God has a plan in place to redeem his people. And that covenant theology is going to build throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Noah. Noah, when God floods the whole earth, he still responds to Noah at the end and builds a covenant with all of humanity. Never again will I flood the earth. Will I destroy humanity with a flood? Sealed with a rainbow. Then that covenant goes to Abraham and the people of Israel. And then that covenant goes to Isaac, his son, and Jacob, the father of Israel. And then on into David and the kings. And we see this covenant all the way through. And with Moses, that covenant takes the form partly in the Ten Commandments. And so Malachi here is going to talk about honor using that covenant language, referencing the Ten Commandments. And he's specifically appealing to the fifth commandment commandment to honor your father and your mother malachi 1 verses 6 through 11 a son honors his father and a slave his master if i'm a father where is the honor do me if i'm a master where's the respect do me says the lord almighty it is you priests who show contempt for my name but you ask how have we shown contempt for your name by offering defiled food on my altar but you ask how have we defiled you by saying the lord's table is contemptible When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So Israel is coming back to temple worship. They're coming back into the building and they're bringing God their leftovers, They're bringing God what's left, the defiled, the wounded, the blind. And God builds this analogy with their governor. Would your governor take your leftovers? Somebody try that on their taxes. Let me know how it goes. I don't have any leftover this year, IRS. Sorry. Bummer for you. But that's what they're doing. And they're looking at it and they're going, look, this this sacrifice is just going to go on the altar and be killed anyway. Why give a good thing? Why give a good thing? Why not give this thing that's going to die anyway? What does God really care? They show contempt. And oftentimes, I think we give God our leftovers as well. And I don't just mean financially. I mean the leftovers of our time, the leftover of our energy, the leftover of our resources. How many of us get up and and give our families the leftovers? We go to work, we go to school, and our family gets the relational energy we have left at the end of the day. We give our leftovers. And God is saying, no, bring me the honor as your God that is due you. In the same way in these other parts of your life, you understand honor. You're not showing God honor. And yet it's not about the things. It's not about... God doesn't need our stuff. God doesn't need these sacrifices to to do his work. Look at verse 11, chapter 1. My name is will be great among the nations. My name will be great. It's a little bit, again, like Esther. There's Mordecai, and he looks at Esther, and he says, go before the king. And Esther says, oh, it's dangerous. And what does Mordecai respond? He responds by saying, if you don't, relief will come from somewhere, even if not from you. God's plans aren't thwarted by us giving less than. It's about honor. It's about us respecting God as our creator, as our God. Romans 12, again, back to Romans. Romans gives us a great example of what this looks like in our reality. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I would encourage you to take some time to think through, what am I giving to God? Am I giving God the honor and respect he is due, or am I giving my leftovers, my less than? And that applies not just here on Sunday morning. That applies all the way through our week and our life and how we treat those around us and how we act at work and at school. Lesson number three, the Israelites had the wrong perspective on faithfulness. Again, God or Malachi, God through Malachi, excuse me, is going to build on these 10 commandments and he's going to reference this time two of them. Number one, he's going to reference commandment number one and the seventh commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. And he's going to tie this idea of faithfulness in relationships to faithfulness to God. Faithfulness inside and outside of marriage in relationship is supposed to be a parallel to our relationship with God. Marriage is Symbolic of the relationship we have with God. Faithfulness in relationship is vital. Faithfulness in marriage finds its prototype in God's faithfulness to mankind and relational integrity inside and outside marriage is tied to our relationship with God. Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do you profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And so the parallel here between unfaithfulness in marriage and unfaithfulness of God is expanded to show that you wouldn't do this in your marriage and yet you do it to God. And that parallel is used numerous times, including in Hosea, where the entire book of Hosea is about Hosea having an unfaithful wife and Hosea representing God who is faithful and his unfaithful wife representing Israel who keeps on leaving again and again and again. And so we need to reevaluate faithfulness, that faithfulness isn't just something that we have because we're married. Faithfulness isn't something we have in relationships just because we're in relationship. Faithfulness with God isn't something that just happens. It takes energy, it takes effort, it takes work. They had the wrong perspective on faithfulness. And yet, look at how it ends. That unfaithfulness does violence to the one you should protect. How many of us have experienced that? Where we have experienced some sort of relational unfaithfulness with somebody, and it has done violence to somebody else. Think about coming home after school and being frustrated with a test that didn't go well. Think about coming home from work and being frustrated with a coworker, Who bears the brunt of that violence? We do violence when we are relationally unfaithful. We hurt at work or school, so we attack those in our homes. We are filled with stress, and so we seek outlets in food and drink. Instead of God's word, we feel alone, so we seek to fill that with online relationships that are really empty and shallow and bring harm to ourselves and to others. Relational integrity is vital to our relationship with God and they are intimately twined twined together. Lesson number four, the Israelites had the wrong perspective on justice. And we go once again to that rhetorical question from God, this time about justice. The Israelites are looking around and wondering where was God? Their eyes were outward focused and going, "God, God, why aren't you punishing them? And God, why aren't you punishing them? And God, why aren't you punishing them? And they had the wrong perspective on justice they felt they had lived up to their end of the bargain and god had not and malachi 2 verse 17 we read this you have wearied the lord with your words how have we wearied him you ask by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the lord and he is pleased with them or where is the god of justice they are missing what God has already done in their world, in their life, in their reality, and they are simply looking from their perspective at what God seemed to be missing out there. But God had been at work, God had been moving, God had called others to account, and God was patient with them, and yet they were appalled that God would be patient with somebody else. And aren't we the same way? I want God to be really patient with me, but the person who hurt me? God, I don't want you to be patient with them. And God, the thing I want, I want it right now. But boy, that person, boy, they're really impatient. Don't they know that good things come to those who wait? Aren't we the same way? We want God to act instantaneously in our benefit and slowly to our detriment. And yet the Israelites are continually oblivious of their own sins. Malachi 3, 5, so I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord God Almighty. That sounds pretty fearful. Sounds like something I should be afraid of. He's going to be quick to testify against me. But if you back up a couple of verses, you understand the context of it. He, he, it says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier, meaning God, of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Why shouldn't we fear it? Because a refining process to those who are open to God working is a purifying process that makes us better. To somebody who's not open to it, it just feels painful like judgment. Because refining is heating of the gold to remove the slag, to remove the dross, and you're left with pure gold or pure silver. And so if you're not open to that, it just feels like burning. So why shouldn't we fear it? Because if we're open to God's rebuke, we are open to becoming the person God has created us to be. Refining separates the gold from the slag and justice and righteousness go hand in hand Israel has lost their perspective on judgment they don't want judgment they want the refining. They want to be refined but they don't want the refining process they want to be God's chosen people they don't want to go through the judgment and yet the judgment of God falls on both the righteous and the unrighteous And it is directly connected to the actions of the people. Look at the things it lists. It lists not only sorcery, which is a heretical view of God, but it lists adultery, perjury, defrauding of of wages, oppressing widows of the fatherless, depriving the foreigners of justice. It is tied directly to their actions. And Jesus gives us a similar description in Matthew 25, on the coming day of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And the passage goes on and shows how the unrighteous respond differently and how they didn't do those things. And we can see in that passage, just like Malachi, not only that our actions are tied to our righteousness, but that it falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alone. We are going to be held accountable for how we behave, for how we act. It's not just about right theology. It's about living out that right theology in action so what's our response if we have the wrong perspective how do we regain that perspective and while I go through this I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up so we can close in a song but what is the solution to the wrong perspective well Malachi tells us number one it's repentance Malachi 3 6-7 through 7, I the Lord do not change so you the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Repentance is not just apologizing. It's one thing to apologize. It's another thing completely to turn and walk away. To respond in repentance requires us to pivot and head the other direction. So take time to consider your status before God in repentance. Look at your life and say, what do I need to not only confess, but turn away from? What do I need to walk the other way? Repentance, number one. And number two, serve God. Malachi 3, 17 through 18. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. How we behave is tied directly. You can see it right here at the end. There's a distinction between those who serve God and those who do not. And so I don't mean serve God as in sign up to do something, though you're welcome to do that here at the church. I mean serve God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. In fact, Jesus gives us that as well in Matthew. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we need to repent, and we need to turn back to serving God. And I would encourage you, the worship team is going to lead us in a song about God's love. Sing along, worship with us, meditate on it. And then at the end, I'm going to come back up and close us in a word of prayer.